we have been walking through a journey that we'll conclude today, and we'll pick it up again next year. Uh, and that journey is a sermon series entitled, Jesus Is. Jesus Is. And basically, this is a series in the book of Mark. We started it when I first took over as pastor back in uh, 2016, and we've kind of gone one or two chapters at a time, and we've gone through chapter four the past couple of weeks. The Gospels are one of those areas in the Scriptures where I feel like we need to go through every single word and every single verse. It's going to take us a little while to get there. And uh, as we finish chapter four here today, we'll take a break and pick it up at some point next year. But, you know, I got close to, uh, to Christmas here and prayed about what God would have me to preach and you know what's amazing? This happened last year and it happened this year as well. Uh, I started in my mind preparing a Christmas sermon and I felt the Spirit of God draw me back to the end of Mark 4 and say, no, th- this is where they need to be at Christmas. They need to be in Mark 4, 35 through 41. And I think when we get to the end of the passage, you'll understand why this is a perfect text uh, for Christmas. It's not the Christmas narrative. Of course, we celebrated that through song last week in our cantata and uh, we're going to go through that again word by word tonight in our uh, candlelight service as well. But we're going to be talking about, uh, basically, uh, the title of the message here is A Quiet Confession of Christ. A Quiet Confession of Christ. In uh, Mark 4, the focal point of the beginning of the chapter, the last few weeks we've talked about the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus was teaching in parables. He He said the kingdom of God is like this and like this and like this. He talked about it being a lamp under a basket and being a seed and being a mustard plant. But now the focus is going from the kingdom of God to the Son of God. It's going to the identity of Jesus Christ. And what better way to celebrate Christmas than figure out who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And and I want to conclude uh, our message today with life's most important question. You have to wait to hear what it is. It is the single most important question you will ever ask yourself. And every human being who has ever lived will have to answer this question. But I'll have to tell you when we get to the conclusion. So, what's the big idea as we walk into Mark 4, 35 through 41? In one sentence, here it is. In the quiet moments surrounding a storm at sea, Jesus reveals His humanity and deity as the Son of God. Say it again for the note takers. In the quiet moments surrounding a storm at sea, Jesus reveals His humanity and deity as the Son of God. So if you have a Bible, please join me in the book of Mark, chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. If you don't have a Bible, please grab the pew Bible in front of you. We'll be on page 998 in your pew Bible. If you would stand at this time, out of the reverence of the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, and fully sufficient word. You're in Mark, chapter 4, and we'll conclude the chapter here, verses 35 through 41. Hear God's word to us starting in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? 
Let us pray. Father, we love you. We thank you and praise you for the day that you have made, and we thank you for the Son that you have sent to redeem us from the penalty of our sins and give us everlasting life, cleansing us and making us more like him with every breath we take. Father, we are a busy people. And this time of year, busier than the rest of the year. We are just scattered people. Would you be with us here in the next few moments? Would you clear our hearts and our minds? And let's look together at the Scriptures, Father, that you would enable us to to see them as the single most important thing in our lives right now, your Word indwelling us. Be with us and help us to truly understand the humanity and deity of Jesus Christ because it means everything. And without Him, we have nothing. Be with us now, Father. Be with me and help me in all of my shortcomings to be faithful as I preach this Word. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in Your sight, my Lord, my Rock, and my Redeemer. It's in Jesus' name we pray and God's people said, Amen. So I mentioned a few moments ago before we read the text that our focus in chapter 4 has gone from the kingdom of God and the sovereignty of God to the Son of God. But I just want to do one quick review for those that were not here or good repetition for those that were. If you've ever wondered what the kingdom of God is, okay, you see it in Scripture all the time. Pastors like me stand behind a pulpit and talk about it all the time, but it means nothing if you don't understand it. The best definition I've ever heard, the kingdom of God according to uh, theologian Graham Goldsworthy is God's people in God's place <coughs> under God's rule and blessing. That was God's intention in the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden. He wanted to be with his people. He wanted to rule over his people and he wanted to bless his people. All we had to do was follow him and obey him. We were given the free will to do that or to not do that. And since we willfully disobeyed him, the kingdom of God was greatly fractured. But God made a promise that one day he would restore the kingdom through a seed of a woman who would come and crush the head of Satan, the serpent. That was Genesis 3.15, the first gospel call, and we know that points to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus shows up on the scene here in the gospels, and, and what he's preaching is the kingdom of God is upon you. The kingdom of God is here, and they're missing it. All right, His disciples are missing it. The Pharisees are also missing it. People are missing it because what they're thinking is, is that there's going to be this Messiah who is a warrior who basically takes by force the nation of Rome and, and basically rules and the Jews will be exalted, but they don't realize that the kingdom of God comes like a mustard seed, which we talked about a few weeks ago. It's so tiny you can't even see it. And it came in the, in the work in the person of Jesus Christ who was born in a Bethlehem manger, raised in a podunk town of Nazareth, and was raised in a blue-collar industry as a carpenter, and now is going through three years of earthly ministry to proclaim this kingdom that they cannot yet see. That's the kingdom of God. The other issue is the sovereignty of God. I may mention that a few times here today. Here's what I mean by that. The sovereignty of God is God's supreme power, His purpose, His plan, and His promise. God can do anything He wants at any time He wants. Okay, That's His sovereignty. He has the power. But He also has a purpose and a plan. He's doing something, and that gives us great comfort in this, and we're going to see this today. In the storms and in the struggles of our life, the sovereignty of God gives us comfort and strength to know that it's not beyond God's understanding. He knew exactly what was going to happen before it did, and He allowed it to happen to draw close to you. All right, and then He has a plan. 
His plan is that ultimately he will be glorified, his son will rule a kingdom, and for those that are called according to his purpose, all right, everything's working together for good. It doesn't feel that way, okay? Not all things are good, but all things are working together for good. That's who God is, all right? So that's his kingdom and sovereignty, but now we're going to shift here in this passage, and then next year when we pick up in Mark 5, the focus is on the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man, one nature, unmixed. I remember talking with Brother Ronnie in our deacons meeting last week, and he said, you know, one of the great heresies is that people say, well, he's half God, half man. No, he's not. He's 100% God, and he is 100% man. And if you get off on the, the ditch either way, you're in serious trouble. All right, we need to know who Jesus is. It is crucial that we understand the identity of Christ. And here's something I want us to see before we walk into the text. I can't say for you, but I can say for me and for those in this text. Jesus often reveals himself to us, not in the sunshine, but in the storm. Not in the sunshine, but in the storm. This is who Jesus is. All right, and we're going to see as we walk through this text. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, fully God and fully man, and sometimes we need to be at the end of our rope to realize who he is. So let's walk through this text together, starting in verses 35 through 36. Number one, let's look at the quiet before the storm. The quiet before the storm. Listen to verses 35 through 36. It says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. So let's think about this, okay? Uh, Sometimes I think when we study the Bible, we see these texts in isolation, and we don't see the full context around them. Again, I'm grateful for teachers like Brother Ronnie that he'll back it up and say, what text came before this, before he actually teaches the actual text? And so the past few weeks, we've seen that Jesus spent all day teaching in parables. It was a long day. And day had turned into night. And most people would have said, well, let's get a good night's rest, and maybe tomorrow we'll continue our journey. We'll cross over the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus says, nope. It said, uh, let us go across to the other side. He's saying when day turned into night, at night he wanted to go. All right, and where were they? They were on the Sea of Galilee, and we know as we look in chapter 5, they were going east east side over the Sea of Galilee to the region of the uh, Gerasenes. And it says going just as he was. What does it mean? Well, it just means that after a long day of preaching and teaching, Jesus was already in the boat, so he said, you know what, let's just go. He did not dilly-dally. All right, he knew what God had called him to do, and he was ready to do the mission that God had called him to do. And so they just set sail right then and there when he was done teaching those parables about the kingdom of God, and they started sailing over the Sea of Galilee. Now, I want to say something that maybe we skip over if we're not careful. Jesus fully knew where he was leading the disciples, he was leading them into a storm. He knew exactly what he was doing. Not only did he allow it, he willed for this to happen. All right? He willed for them to go directly into a storm. And we need to be careful in our own lives to realize that he's doing the same with us. That's not popular news. That's not going to sell Christian books. Okay? One of the things that is often used in this text, one of the ways in which it's misapplied is that they say Jesus will calm the storms of your life. Well, he might, but he might not. What Jesus will do is lead you into the storm and then be with you through the storm. Jesus not only allows but ordains that you go through storms. And the reason why is 
It is in the storm and not the sunshine that you cling to him and know who he is. I can testify to that in my own life. My, my, my most fervent prayers, getting carpet burn on my forehead, have been during the deepest storms of my life. And it scares me to know that the worst storms I've ever faced are ones that are yet to come. You know, last night I was uh, having trouble sleeping and I watched a sermon uh, that a pastor had preached in 2014. Guy's name was Jared Wilson, and he preached a sermon on the pastor in his weakness. And he just wept as he was preaching, and he talked about how God will humble a pastor and constantly make him aware of his weakness so that he doesn't boast in anything but Jesus. And I will tell you, there are days that I look in the mirror and I'm utterly humiliated at my weaknesses. But God ordains for me to look in that mirror because it is in that mirror that I know that Jesus is what my life is about proclaiming his truth, worshiping him in spirit and truth. And he's doing the same for you. Again, I, I said this when we went through the book of Jonah. We're either going into a storm, we're in a storm, or we're just coming out of a storm. But it's so true. And as we think towards 2019, yeah, I think it's okay to pray that God would keep the waters calm because he may answer that prayer. But if it's going to bring you close to him, he's going to allow you to go through a storm. Because it's in that storm that you will know more about who he is. Sometimes you're in the storm because of sin, and God wants you to repent. All right? Sometimes people don't ever say, well, it was my fault. You know, what I'm going through. Sometimes what you're going through is your fault, and God is trying to get your attention. And sometimes it's not your fault. Sometimes you did everything right, and God said, you know what? I'm going to allow this to happen because some way this is going to strip you down so that I can build you up. This is what God does. And this is what Jesus is doing. He is leading them into a storm. Um, again, Jesus is aware of every storm that you're going to walk into in 2019. Do not think that he's going to calm the storm, but cling to the truth that he will be with you in the storm. He will be with you. So this is the quiet before the storm. Number two, let's look at verses 37 through 38, the quiet in the storm. All right, here's what it says starting in verse 37. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? The first thing we notice in verse 37, it's very descriptive. And I think that reason why is this. I, I believe it comes from a personal testimony. All right, I think Mark was getting these words inspired of the Holy Spirit through the apostle Peter. Okay, if you know anything about the Gospels, typically Paul was an associate of Luke, so Luke got a lot of his information from Paul, and Mark was an associate of Peter and got a lot of his information from Peter, and the Holy Spirit inspired every single word of it. All right, so I believe that these words are as descriptive as they are because Mark sat down with Peter, and Peter explained under no uncertain terms exactly what this storm was like. And this was a big storm, great windstorm, waves breaking into the boat, boat filling up, and where's Jesus? He's not just on the other side of the boat. He's in the stern, asleep on the cushion, being descriptive for a specific purpose. All right? And here's the thing. Why was Jesus asleep? Why? Can, can I knock your socks off with this unbelievable interpretation? He was tired. <laughs> That's why Jesus was asleep, because he was tired. Let's not look too deep into that, but let's look at the humanity of Jesus. Jesus was tired because Jesus was also fully man. That's such good news. We worship a Savior who can empathize with every struggle that we have. 
He was tired. He was hungry. He was lonely. He was grieved. He was frustrated, just like we are, yet without sin. This is the God we worship. This is the God who took on flesh in a manger in Bethlehem that we celebrate this time of year. He was fully man. You know, my mother called me, or I called her on her birthday on December 7th, and she's in a big storm. She had her best friend and her best friend's mom both live with her, and both of them have cancer right now in the same house. Her best friend's mom has uh, less than six months to live, and her best friend has a better hopeful outcome, but she's going through intense radiation and chemo right now every day for the next, I think, six or seven weeks. I mean, it's intense. Cervical cancer is nothing to mess around with. And mom and I were talking on the phone, and I shared with her that I had visited with one of our church members here who's in the hospital. And that church member had said to me, is it okay that I want to die? I'm in so much physical pain, and I know what what is before me, that Jesus is waiting on me, and my loved ones are waiting on me. Is it okay that I want to die? And I was with Dave. Dave and I uh, prayed a blessing over her and said, listen, you're just like Paul. He said, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. It's good to want to be here as long as possible, but it's even better to want to be with the Lord. This is what he's telling us. And so my mother said, well, how do you answer that question? And I just broke down in tears, and I just said to my mom, this is why I love Jesus. I'm so grateful for what he did for me. I'm so grateful for what he does for every single person laying in those hospital beds. He became one of us, that he could empathize with us, and then he redeemed us by living the life that we should have lived and dying the death that we deserved, imputing his righteousness to us that we get a perfect report card taking on the punishment of our sin, that we no longer have to deal with condemnation. Romans 8, 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And I just said to my mom, this is why I love Jesus, because he became one of us. I don't worship a distant God who was too comfortable on his throne to, 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 to stand up and move, but, but he came down, and he came down in humility as a suffering servant. There's nothing that you can go through that you could shake your fist at God and say, you don't understand Because in Jesus, he does. He fully understands what we struggle with. And that's the answer we give to those who are in the bed wondering what they're going to take their next breath. This is why we need Jesus. This is why we need him. Now, as we walk through the passage and we think about this storm, I want to illustrate how, how rough this storm was. Most of the disciples, not all, but most were trained fishermen. But they were terrified for their lives. All right, so this wasn't just some South Georgia pop-up storm in the summertime where you get a little bit of rain in your boat. I mean, literally, they thought they were going to die. And what did they do in the moment of, uh, of absolute terror? They questioned the heart of Jesus. They questioned him. They said, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Don't you care? Can I tell you the truth? That's me. It's probably most of you. How many times... Have you struggled praying for the same thing over and over again and the words have come out of your mouth, God, why won't you answer this? Don't you care? I prayed that prayer in this room on a Tuesday. I'll never forget. I'm so grateful sometimes that this is a quiet sanctuary during the week because I, I mean, when I get into prayer sometimes, man, it gets Holy Ghost in here. (laughs) And I just ran up and down the aisle just hollering, Lord, why won't you answer this prayer? Why? We're just like the disciples. Now listen, nobody enjoys a storm. We're not masochists. We don't enjoy pain. And if you do, I think there's something wrong. 
All right, we're not supposed to enjoy pain. <clears throat> we're not supposed to pursue pain. But in the moment of our pain, we are not called to question God. I think it is okay for a season to ask why. Okay, the Psalms give us permission to beat on the chest of God. But if you look at the end of almost every lament psalm, they, they end up, the, the psalm usually ends with, but you are God. They don't ever question the heart or the intention of God. They may question why God is allowing it to happen. Some things we'll never understand until we get to be with God. And when we're with Him, we're probably not going to want to know because we're with Him. But here's the deal. I believe this with all of my heart, that in the storm, we need to be careful with what we say. We need to be careful with our hearts. We need to know that God is good. That if we had fully obeyed God since Adam and Eve, we never would have experienced this because everything God creates is good. We experience the pain that we experience because of sin, because of the fallen world. But He loved us so much that He sent His Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life and be restored from that brokenness. So that's what we need to remind ourselves. And here's the thing before we move on to our third point. Why is it that we question him in the storm? I think there's two reasons, okay? And one, I, I need you to listen to me closely on this, okay? One, I think, is, is uh, the responsibility of TV preachers today who are not preaching the gospel, all right? They preach the prosperity gospel, which teaches if you have enough faith, God will give you all the health, wealth, and prosperity. You're going to come into your best season now. You just have to have faith. That's exactly what they're teaching, and it's a lie from the pit of hell. It is a lie from the pit of hell. If you, if you see those sermons or see those books, pass them by because you're missing the point of the gospel. You're missing what Jesus is saying. If Jesus had not led them into a storm, they never would have known that he's God. Jesus does not enjoy watching you in pain, but he will purposely allow you into the most painful season, again, that he will make you like his son. It is not in the sunshine but the storm. And I think most of us question God because we've been wrongly instructed. We hear these preachers and read these books that say, you know, your season's coming, your prosperity's coming. And so when it doesn't come and we say, God, I was at church every week for the past six months. I've been tithing. I've been doing this. I've been doing this. And you allow this to happen to me? Well, we didn't understand what Jesus was saying. And then the second thing is we struggle with control. When you're in a storm, you do not have control. And boy, we hate that. I hate that. I know you do too. Don't lie to your preacher. You hate it. There's something about us that wants to have control. And in the storm, God pries our our cold fingers away from the soul of our, our being and says, nope, you're not in control. I am. This is what he's doing in our lives. And this is why we question him in the storm. So let us look at number three now as we continue through the text. All right, we've seen the quiet before the storm, the quiet in the storm. Now let's look, number three, at the quiet over the storm. Listen to verses 39 through 40. It says, And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now this right here is the point of the whole passage. And many, many people miss this. The point of this passage and most of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the point is this. Jesus has power over nature, therefore he is God. That's the point. All right, this is the point. He's revealing to the disciples. 
Look what I can do that nobody else can do. I must be the one you're waiting on. I am God. He is the one that has power over nature. And we'll see later on. He has power over sickness. He has power over disease. He has power over blindness. And eventually we see he has power over death itself because Jesus is God. All right, we said a few moments ago, Jesus is fully human. He was asleep. Now he wakes up and calms the storm. Guess what? Jesus is also fully God. Fully God, fully man, in one nature, unmixed. That's who Jesus is. That is exactly who it is that we worship. And what does he do after he demonstrates the fact that he is God? Well, he questions the faith of the disciples. And here's the thing. Again, don't miss this. He's not questioning whether they would have trusted that he would have calmed the storm. He's questioning why they didn't trust that he's God. That's what, he's, that's what he's questioning about their faith. I've heard preachers twist this text to say, you have the storm in your life because you just don't have enough faith. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you did not trust that Jesus is God. You thought some wise prophet was in the boat with you, but you didn't realize this prophet is a lot more than that. He's a prophet, a priest, and a king. He's God. This is Jesus. And he's questioning their faith. Now, a lot of us would say, how could they not know that he's God? How did they miss this? All right, you may ask yourself, you ever, you ever read the Old Testament and go, man, the Israelites just didn't get it. Gosh, how many times does you know, God parts the Red Sea and moments later they're worshiping a golden calf? Like We say, well, well they just don't get it. You know, these disciples are following Jesus for, for three years of earthly ministry and they still don't know he's God. Here's the thing, you wouldn't either. And we have less of an excuse than they do because we know the end of the story and they don't. Do you know that? You have less of an excuse than those who are actually physically with Jesus because you know the end of the story and they did not. It's easy to work from the, the end back to the beginning than it is the other way around. All right? So we know the end of the story. We know that Jesus reveals himself as fully God and fully man. We know that Jesus rises from the dead and makes a way from death to life. We know that Jesus ascends to the Father and sends down the Holy Spirit. And we know that Jesus one day will come back, fully God, fully man, and restore a new kingdom on the earth forever. We know the end of the story. Therefore, we have less excuse than they do to not have faith of who Jesus is in the midst of the storms we, we struggle with. We need to cling to Jesus Christ because we know the end of the story. And that brings us to the end of this story. Number four, as we've seen the quiet before the storm, the quiet in the storm, and the quiet over the storm, let's look at the quiet after the storm. Verse 41, it says, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, if somebody came to you with a time machine and said, uh, I'll take you back to one moment in history, where, where would you want to go and why? Uh, I've often said I'd like to be with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane because that's where he did battle on his knees and made a decision that he would drink the full cup of God's wrath. But if I could choose a second place to go, I may want to be in the boat with him in this, in this particular scene because I would love to see the reaction of the disciples. I want you to see the drama of this. Sometimes we need to use our, our senses and we need to smell the salt. We need to taste the sea foam and we need to hear the waves roaring against the boat. And we need to look into the faces of the disciples as they are terrified. And then Jesus says, peace, be still. And they said, we're going to die, we're going to die. And then all of a sudden everything went. <sighs> and then I just think they look at each other for a minute and go, uh, Peter? Did you see that? Yeah, John? Who? Who is this? 
who is this that you asked to go on this journey with us? Who is this man? You know what? That right there is the single most important question that you will ever ask yourself. Who is Jesus and how do you respond? I, I promise you, there's not another question you will ever ask yourself more important than that. Eternity is on the line. Not who you're going to marry, not where you're going to work, not what house you're going to buy, not when you're going to retire, not what money you're going to spend on this or where you're going to go and do that, not how many kids you're going to have. All those are important questions all of you have asked at some point in your life. The single most important question you'll ever be asked that you will have to answer at the day of judgment is this. Who is Jesus and how do you respond? Guess how they responded? Fear. And guess what? That is a right response. A lot of times we say, you know, I remember growing up, not to throw family members under the bus, but many members of my family used to tell me growing up, well, I just, I don't like this whole fire and brimstone and this fear of God. God is love. He is love, but he's also holy. It is good to love and fear God. Those are not polar opposites. I've preached on this at great length. All right, I've talked about the salt and pepper God. They travel in pairs, okay? The, the love and the holiness of God. And the only true, right, logical response to holiness is fear. It, and it's not a terrifying, oh my goodness, he is going to condemn me, fear. It's a reverent, trembling, like standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon fear. And that's the awe and the fear that we should have when we stand in the presence of God. And that's what they felt. Because they realized in that boat that it was not just a mere man. Now granted, it took them a little longer to fully understand it. It wasn't until Peter finally confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. And uh, Peter in that famous, or Jesus in that famous passage in Matthew 16 says, you know, that uh, God and not flesh had revealed that to him and that upon that confession he would build his church. But they're starting to understand this is not just any person. That this is God. And I want to ask you the same thing. Have you answered that question? I do not care about your church attendance. I do not care if you were baptized. I do not care if you signed an evangelist card. Could that be the moment that you truly became a believer in Jesus Christ? Maybe, but maybe not. All right, when you stand before God, he's not going to say, hand in your, the Bible that your preacher signed the day you got saved. He's going to say, tell me who Jesus is. And if your answer is past tense, you're in trouble. Faith is never a past tense experience. Yes, you could have been saved at a moment in time and space, but the truth and the evidence that you were saved is that you know him today and you love him today and you worship him today. Fully God, fully man in one nature unmixed. This is who Jesus is. So who is Jesus? Who is this carpenter from Nazareth who has power and dominion over nature, demons, blindness, paralysis, sickness, curses, death, and finally eternal salvation? Who is this priest, prophet, and king who lived the way we should have lived and died the death that we deserved? Who is this God and this man who offers us the gift of eternal life through repentance and faith? Who is Jesus and how will you respond? It's the most important question you will ever ask yourself. And you will have to give an answer of this after you take your final breath. And I'll say this before we close. If you ever wondered what a cult is, okay? What's the difference between a true Christian denomination and a cult? All right, because there's a whole lot of churches around here, right? 
All right, you got your Presbyterian, you got your Southern Baptist, you got your Pentecostal, you got your uh, Church of God. You've, I mean, fill in the blank. There's all kinds of different denominations. I think we, most of us agree on the main things and kind of disagree on secondary issues. But what makes a cult a cult? How they answer that question. The reason that I can say with full confidence, and I say this in humility for those of you maybe in this room who believe this or have family members who do, the reason that Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christian and Mormons are not Christian, and those of the Baha'i faith are not Christian, is because they get this question wrong. And they'll have to stand before God and give an account on that. All right, this is, this is, this is a yes or no, okay? This, you don't get partial credit on this test. He's either fully God and fully man, or he's, or he's nothing. And I'm putting all my eggs in the Jesus basket, that he's fully God and fully man. Because I believe that with all of my heart. And why do I say this? I want to say this to parents and grandparents and to many of you who have children or grandchildren who are getting ready for college. You need to hear me clearly on this. There is, uh, I mentioned the Baha'i faith. Okay, this is one of these world religions that's gaining popularity. It is exploding in Statesboro right now. And I'll tell you what they teach. They teach that there's one God and he's this light. And all these religious figures are just lamps as part of that light. So Moses was a lamp, Muhammad was a lamp, Jesus is just one of the lamps, all right? Let me just say, if you don't know your Bible, that could be really deceitful. I mean, you could be, you could tre- you'd be fall, you fall into that sin pretty quickly, and there's many uh, Georgia Southern professors who lead those meetings in Statesboro, I know because I talk with one of them. Here's the thing, Jesus will not share his throne, all right? He, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man gets to the Father but by me. That does not mean that Christians are ignorant or prideful, that we think we know the only one way. Jesus himself said it, and I believe it, because he's fully God and fully man. Moses was not God. Buddha was not God. Mohammed is not God. Confucius is not God. Jesus is God. Look at your calendar. Every birth is measured by before his birth or after his birth. Not Moses's, not Mohammed's. So we have to answer this question. Who is Jesus? This is what the disciples asked. Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And the answer is, it is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, in one nature, unmixed. And I just, I want to say that we need to be careful because if we say that Jesus was not fully human, then he could not have earned my righteousness. And if we say that he's not fully God, then he could never have had the the strength to atone for my sins. He has to be both. He has to be high priest and king and prophet. He has to be fully God and fully man. So let me sum this up. One sentence before we pray. In the quiet moments surrounding your own storms, have you confessed that Jesus is the Son of God? In the quiet moments surrounding your own storms, have you confessed that Jesus is the Son of God? There's, a, there's an assumption in that statement, not that will you go through a storm. I'm already assuming that you're in one or that you're going to go into one real shortly. I don't celebrate that. I don't like storms. I don't like waking up in the morning thinking about the troubles of the day and in the shower trying to give myself a pep talk to get going. We all have those days. And sometimes those seasons feel like they'll never end. But here's the thing, in that moment, because it's coming, in 2019 it's coming, are you willing to trust in Jesus Christ? He may calm the storm, and He may not. He may carry you through the storm, and He may even call you home. 
But whatever the case may be, the issue is not the storm. It's the identity of Jesus. And let us see in this quiet confession of Christ, in the quiet before the storm, and the quiet in the storm, and the quiet over the storm, and in the quiet after the storm, let us never forget and answer this question ourselves: Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God. And that is what we're celebrating at Christmas. Let's pray. God, we we come to you as humbly as we know how and confess that this is a fallen and broken world and we struggle. We go into storms all the time. And all of us probably in this room have questioned you in those storms. We have. Forgive us and help us to rightly understand the purpose of a storm. Help us to remember in every storm this year, God, that You ordained for it to happen. You allowed it to happen. You knew that it would happen. And you don't find joy in watching us suffer, but you you certainly find joy in watching us cling to your son. Father, I, I pray over every single soul in this room and the families they represent. If there's anybody in this room that has not answered that question, who is Jesus, and not repented of sin and trusted in Him as Lord and Savior, Father, I pray by the power of Your Holy Spirit that You would bless the reading and preaching of Your Word and deeply convict them of sin and remove that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. I pray salvation would come to this house this morning for Your glory, for our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.